Okay, look, so this is unstandardized English. I am uh, Dr. JPB Gerald. It's still weird to say, like, they, they still haven't sent me my damn diploma. I don't, there's like bureaucratic stuff going on. 17 of us, gra- so my program um, started in 2016, the first cohort, right? Now the school, Hunter, is, is not new. Right, hunters from the 19th century, and the City University of New York as a system is not new, but this EDD is the first in um, Hunter, and so when I started, we didn't have any graduates because it had only been two years since it started. So like they couldn't tell me how long it would take because they really didn't know. They design it one way or the other, but like they didn't know how long it would take people to do it. So anyway, this, so one woman graduated last year. She finished her requirements and there wasn't really an in-person ceremony for obvious reasons. This year they did it, you know, when I had my mask on and everything and and so on. But, um, I mean, I went on stage, I took the mask off for the picture. I mean, come on. But, uh, because that means this was the first time that we had a graduation and we had graduates, aside from the woman who graduated last year. So... I don't know what their fucking problem is, but they're taking a long time to get the paperwork done and, and send me my damn diploma. Whatever. I don't think the piece of paper matters. All I know is I finished. I say that to say, you know, my book is out. It was not supposed to be out. I'm recording this on September 22nd. My book was supposed to be released on September 30th, and they told me over the summer what the deal is, where basically I did I hit all of my deadlines early because that's kind of who I am. Um, and I, uh, I was, the book, when I signed the contract in early of 20, in, in early 2021, I was supposed to have this book published in June of 23, right? June of 23. And I told them, they asked me, how long will it take you to write a manuscript? Because they've had so many authors and for some reason, maybe it was my prominence in anti-racism and language teaching or whatever, they wanted to work with me. And so they said, okay, how long do you think it'll take to write? And I gave myself a year to write 70,000 words, which was daunting. But once I finally got in the hang of it, 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 it I finished the first um, first draft in... I guess I started at the end of January, maybe the beginning of February. So it took me about six and a half months with some breaks in there. Anyway, the point is that uh, the book is out. It was supposed to, and they told me that they basically release all their books on the last day of the month, but then sometimes things are printed early. They're not late. Sometimes they're early. So they said it could either come out on the 30th or the 15th. And somehow it came out on the 21st. Like I was told, I got an email because I have a UK publisher. I got an email when I woke up yesterday. Uh, that basically said, your book has arrived in our warehouse. And then I started getting text messages from DHL, because I guess DHL is more common for overseas shipping, because, like, I never see DHL here in New York, you know? I see FedEx, I see UPS. I don't think I've had a DHL delivery. Because <laughs> I remember there being a big deal in, 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 in like NBA commercials in the 90s. But for whatever reason, I think that they do a lot of commercial shipping and, and not, um, you know, stuff that you personally buy, although these are books. But anyway, so it's supposed to come tonight. This is this like it's it's lunchtime. I'm doing this on my lunch break, this intro, not the recording of the um, conversation. And, yeah, like, I'm going to have books in my hand tonight. Like, what the fuck, man? Like, I can't take it back now. 
people can read it. Everyone who's read it has liked it, and and I guess that, you know it's an impo- you know imposter whatever syndrome where I'm just like I don't know. Like are my parents gonna like it? Are my friends gonna like it? There's a couple of people in there who are criticized, and I don't know if they're gonna like it. I, I tried not to make it because there's this there's this common thread in like sitcoms and dramas, just TV shows where one of the characters is a writer, and then they unauthorized write terrible shit about everybody they know, and then they're all surprised that everybody's mad at them. I did not do that. There's a couple of people who are criticized, but they're not like my friends. They're not people who are going to read the book because they're criticized because they're upholding racism, right? And if you do racist shit, you're going to get criticized, so fuck you. But anyway, (laughs) um, like my family doesn't really come up in the book. I mention, for example, early in the book where we lived, our house had a really ugly yellow kitchen because it did. It was ugly. But that's not a criticism of my mother. That's the house that we bought. And we, <clears throat> my mom knew it was ugly because she refurbished the whole thing or she paid for it to be refurbished. <clears throat> and, you know, to think about all of that and, and to think about the way that people are going to react because there's still, you know, the backlash I'm getting so far. And again, no one's read it yet, aside from a small number of people I sent it to. So any backlash now is bullshit because if you haven't fucking read it, Right. Um, it's all based on the fact that whiteness is in the title or it says pathology of whiteness, right? And that's why it's in the title <laughs> because there's, there's people, cause I used to think a few years ago when I started writing, I didn't really want to, I've said this a million times, but I did not come into this trying to be like a racism scholar. I knew what I knew about racism, but like. It took a lot of scholarship, research, and so forth for me to understand how many more things that I thought were bad were actually tied to racism. You know, and in the book, I I, I sort of bounce between historical evidence and then my own life and how just in small ways racism can still affect me, even though I didn't grow up with um, being, you know, class oppressed in a lot of ways, right? I do still think it's different for someone who is a person of color, like to to like if, if a person of color says I want to buy a house because that's the only way to get wealth for my family, I'm not saying that that's what I would do, but I'm not necessarily going to feel the same way as if one of my white friends moves into a town that's 85% white and say, well, that's just the way to build wealth. You don't need to build wealth, all right? You're fine. The world will suit you just fine. Um, and uh, And it just keeps happening, man. Because the only places that are affordable, and I don't mean emotionally, but financially affordable, are either, they're very uh, homogenous one way or the other. There's places that are homogenous in terms of them being mostly people of color, which I find compelling places to live, but unfortunately a lot of the places to buy are not valuable. I don't mean financially, I mean they're not like places you want to live in, like the house or the apartment. Or they're super white. And I also think that super white areas, unless you're talking about like a Mar-a-Lago or some shit like that, are, are usually a little bit cheaper. Um, and so I see friends who will tell me they're committed to this stuff. And then they go buy a house where everybody's white. And they're going to raise their kids around only white neighbors. And these are like my friends, or supposedly. And I tell you, man, if you are listening to this and you have a choice, and again, I don't begrudge anybody. If you don't have any money, you live where you can live, right? I'm not talking about you. And if you have to move near your, like if you move to a college town because you got a job as an academic in a college town and that college town is super white, that's probably not that much you could do about it. You could probably live in the area that has less 
of a hom- homogeneity issue, right? Like I considered a job in the university at Buffalo. Of course, I didn't get the interview, which we can talk about. But anyway, that the university is in the suburbs, but the I would have lived in the city, right? So you can make that choice. But anyway, aside from someone who's just living near their job, people really, it's just they can't break out of that, that they can't, really stick to the principles they espouse when they talk to me. And I find it pretty disappointing. You know, I just keep finding people who do this and they just like, they'll say what they say. Maybe they'll donate a few dollars here and there, but ultimately their biggest decision where to live, what they think is a quote unquote good school still aligns with the people that they say they disagree with. Like you got to live this shit, you know, live this shit. Speaking of living this shit, my guest today, my guests today, um, are, are, are the hosts of Latinx Can Podcast, which is also on my network, uh, Connected, which you should be listening to all of the others. Uh, and I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation um, about their work, about my work. And you know me, I'll start talking to them about whatever, and then we'll start talking about whatever is in my head. Uh, but anyway, as ever, there is a Patreon for the show. Okay, please consider contributing if you find the work valuable. Although, right now, I have to confess, I'm more interested in you buying the book if you haven't yet. Frankly, if you are just hearing about my show and you don't know that my book is out, well, maybe you're hearing this three years in the future, but otherwise, please buy the book. Uh, The link will be in the show notes. And otherwise, hope that you enjoy the episode. Okay, folks, unstandardized English here. You know that. You've been listening to me talk in the introduction for a while. So then you also know that I'm here with Dr. Jenere Flores. And she is from the Latinx Can podcast, a, I don't know, sibling podcast on the, the Connected Network. And she's going to tell us a little bit about the work that she does and about the podcast. Just give us sort of an overview who you are, and, and then we'll talk a little bit about the show, and then we'll get into just talking in general. But also, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Dr. JPB. Uh, congratulations on your doctorate. I don't think it was too long ago that, that you achieved that milestone. And I think for those that go through it, we all know how much work it is. And then people, I, mean, I don't know. I think for me, sometimes I feel weird telling, telling people that I have a PhD. So I kind of just drop it off my name most of the time. And then it's like, no, it's it's a huge accomplishment, no? So um I just want to take a moment to congratulate you on that, and then we'll just be regular people again. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah go Thanks, ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so I am, like you said, Jenny De Flores. I host a podcast. It's called Latinx Scan. We're in... What we do in Latinx Scan is showcase the, the stories of Latinx professionals and not just their stories because we know that their stories are inspiring and we need those, but we also focus on the tips and tricks that they use to get to where they are today, to meet the goals that they, that they trace for themselves. Because as a, um, the Latinx community is predominantly a community of immigrants in the United States. Not everybody who is from a Latinx background is an immigrant. There are generations of people that are Latinx that were born in the U.S. But in general, we are from a, um, an immigrant community. And so that means that we don't necessarily have the generational knowledge 
to get to some of these places. Like how if your parents maybe only clean houses to help you get through your education, maybe they don't know how to help you get an internship or they don't have connections to, you know, big companies to help you get that internship. So that's why we have our friends that are Latinx professionals tell us how they found that scholarship, how they got that internship, where can they go and look for information. So, so hopefully somebody that listens to the podcast can take in that information and apply it for themselves. So, yeah, that's what we do. So that's really interesting because, you know, there's um, the word professional can mean a lot of things, right? And and mm-hmm. to me, I suppose it means anyone who's has some sort of career trajectory, and I don't mean to disparage anyone who's – not doing that but that's that well you need a story <laughs> so there's just yeah, there has to be an yeah. arc to the story right there has to be developments and a climax um and i think it's actually it's not explicitly the same as as what i do on this show in the sense that that's not the theme but most of the people i have on the show are pretty early career um folks whether they're not all academics um but i think I want my show to be sort of accessible for people who are students, um, especially yeah. because I want them to think about the possibilities for them and how realistic X, Y, and Z might be, you know, because yeah. I talk to, I don't talk to any, I don't think there's anyone who's been on my show who, um, isn't critical of the structures of academia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, someone who's just a yeah. cheerleader for it. Like the people who, I was in this um, situation last year where a, a colleague and I were working on an article for um, a journal special issue. You know how they special issues, right? It's when they want to talk about racism, special issue. Um, and then everybody can go back to forget about it. But even when they want to get their friends in. Yeah. <laughs> um, but even within their paradigm of the special issue, they still had so many restrictions. We didn't end up publishing the article because they kept coming back with non-substantive critiques. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm actually not that person who's so precious about their writing that I won't take a critique, right? Like if you, t- mm-hmm. oh, they say, maybe you should cite this. I'm like, yeah, cause I haven't read everything, right? So like I, I take that criticism, right? Or maybe this, the structure of this might work better, a little bit clearer. Like that's fine. Cause I don't know. Like that, that, that sort of thing, you know, and I talk about this a lot on the show about the, but they were so rigid about what they said counted as critical anti-racism, right? Which is to say they so mm. believed in the rigidity of a, of like a theoretical concept. And I'm like, but it's, it's, what, is this not some positivist stuff? This is not 1920. Like we can be really innovative with the theories that we're using, right? And yeah. to be so restrictive. And I got this. And of course the woman happened to be black, uh, you know, who was being really rigid about stuff. And I realized that for a lot of people, especially in our communities, um, the ones who make it often are not willing to allow the ones behind them to come up and be themselves. They'll yeah. tell them, you have to yeah. succeed by doing A, B, and C. And yeah. if you do it differently, you're going to fuck my shit up. <laughs> yeah. No, I I see that a lot. And I see it. I've seen, I've seen it when I, I've been working. And in, like, in my careers, I haven't seen a lot of Latinx scientists, uh, like be directors or something like that. Uh, but I've seen, we've seen other maybe black colleagues that are VPs of technology or thing. And, and then I talked to some of my black colleagues about this. And so we're like, okay, so 
like what advice did this person tell you? And they're like, basically just conform to the system. And I'm like, well, that's not helpful, right? Like that is like how one of the things I think about is, you know, it's it's a system and it's a game. At least from my from my perspective, corporate America is a game that you gotta play. And I hear this all the time. It's like you have to have influence and power to make change, or you have to be to in a position of power to affect change. And I sort of understand where that's coming from, but my worry is that there's so many people that just like learn to play the game so well that they live the game. And then they forget that the, that the game, that it's a game, you know. And so when they get to those positions of power, they don't do anything. And I thought that that was going to be like a generational thing, that that was, you know, the people that are, I don't know, 10, 15 years older than me. I'm 35, so maybe 50. Um, but I was just talking to some of my friends this weekend from college. They, they're younger than me. Um, by two or three years, and they have been working in the corporate spaces for eight, ten years now, and they have the same mentality. Like they're like, "Oh, you gotta play the game. Oh, you gotta like, you can't, you can't say things like that." Or like, one of the things that I was talking about is, um, we were talking about this person who showed up to a meeting, a Zoom meeting in a hoodie, and they're like, "Oh, like we can't have that person in a hoodie. Like that's unprofessional." And I'm like, why is it unprofessional? Like her or his or they performance doesn't depend on what they're wearing, one. And then two, like, why do you judge them? You know, like you maybe you had to conform because times were different eight years ago. We have we have, you know, achieved some change. Um, but, but if you're the next generation, if you're going to be the middle management and you're, you know, judging people for just wearing a hoodie, like, I don't know what we're going to do. I mean, I'm a little disheartened. Yeah. Um, it's like all the people I talked to in my dissertation, they were not all, but mostly academics, white academics, because it was about them trying to challenge things that Mm. might have materially benefited them but they're still trying to challenge it. And they were trying, but um, the other one, when, well, when I get tenure, you know, yeah. Oh, well, when, when, you know, when I get to be the, the, the chair, Oh, when I get to, but like, it's sort of a chicken or the egg thing because the last job I had, I did not, I was not actually, like I said, a city employee, but I was, I worked for a university, but we were sort of embedded in a city office like a city government office. Mm-hmm. So we taught classes to city government workers, right? Um, and on their management team, like, it was not homogenous. It was pretty diverse. Like, it wasn't, you know, I mean, until you got to the top, then, you know, but, <laughs> but like, the middle management was diverse, right? Right. But then I would ask myself, like, a lot of the middle management, especially the black middle management, but um, were – the meanest people you could ever meet and like to the point where people just just really old fashioned management stuff you know cracking the whip stuff and I said to myself at one point do they get to this job because they're like that or do they become like that once they're in the job yeah yeah I think it's a little bit of both right because like there's a lot of people working there you know, they're choosing who's going to move up the ladder. It's probably yeah. talking about um, do people 
get there and then become like that? Or do people get there because they are like that? Yeah. I mean, there's no real way to, I'm sure that that is research someone's doing, but then how would you define like that? Right. You know, that would be yeah. hard, hard to do in the, in, in the, like setting up the, the research questions, like what like that means. Because then yeah. <laughs> you got, you're going to have, because unless you are, and I, I always wonder about this. It's like the people who do research on people who do racist things. It's like somehow you have to get these people to agree to be in your in your study, <laughs> and then you're going to publish it and be like, "Hey, look, these racists." Um, so uh, the but the people do it. But anyway, so like, and this has happened to me. And again, it is it's not it's not true that the only bad bosses I have have been people of color. But mm-hmm. I'll tell you, a lot of the bad a, a lot of the bad bot. Bo- a lot of the bad bosses that bad have been people of color, and it's annoying when that happens because, like, mm. I really expect there to be some solidarity, you know. Yeah. I, I really expect there to be um, support, and I, I don't mean, you know, whole, a crutch for someone who's not doing anything. No, I'm yeah, not talking yeah. about that. Um, I have a, a, a great boss now. He, uh, he's, he's black guy. So, like, it's not, it's not like if the person is X, they're going to be whatever. Uh, and also, I also wonder if it depends on the industry, because I think that, that I've always worked in nonprofits or public, you know, public service to some extent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's this attitude that, you know, this is the best things you're going to get. So, you know, don't even think about trying to make things better. You know, um, yeah. you see that in nonprofits and, and, you know, uh, you see it in, in any sort of city government work, which I wasn't going to do about it. So shut up. Yeah. Um, and then on yeah. the other side, there's the like super, super corporate, like, you know, investment banking side where people are just sort of abusive in that way. But that's, that's, I feel like that's less race based and that's more just the, that industry. So. I think there's a lot of room in between, frankly, and this yeah. is kind of boring, but like generally when everyone is being well compensated without being exploited, it kind of tends to go better <laughs> because then nobody <laughs> has anything to argue about, yeah. right? And I know. I think. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was like, going back to what you were saying is, is it the industry or, you know, that, that you're in and, and, you know, the, the fact that some of most of the bad bosses you have had have minority backgrounds. Like one, I'm in, I'm in the chemical industry and the worst, the worst bosses I have had are women. And so have been women. And, um, first of all, I mean, most of them were white women. So there's a difference there that I didn't understand before, but I understand now. But it, in any way, it's like they want to make you suffer just as much as they suffered before. Like, I don't understand that concept. Like, honestly, my that is not my philosophy of life. I don't need to see people suffer and I don't need to see people earn the respect. You know, like a lot of a lot of times I heard managers say, well, you know, you got to earn my trust. And I was like. I mean, I understand that's how people have done it for centuries. But how about we start with trust? And if I screw it up, then you can have you have something to say about it, you know? So it's almost like I, I would like to see the the new managers, the next managers, whoever manager I encounter in my life, and even if I am ever to become a manager, to be one of those people who's like, okay, yes, I had to suffer, but but I don't want to see you suffer that way. So let me try and help you. And why can't we do that? Like, I don't know. I, I don't understand why people are just so into this, 
you know, I lived trauma, so let me pass it on to you as well. Yeah, there's there's two things I wanted to say, because one thing I wanted to say before the audio got cut off is that, like, my wife and I have gotten to parts in our career where we're pretty we're pretty settled. That doesn't mean we won't change jobs. It's just like we're not worried anymore. Um, and that's a very fortunate place to be. And it's something that I've been observing since I started working this job and, you know, salary change and all that. And my, it will combine with my wife is always getting more money than I do, but now I, we both, it's more similar and we're both sort of mm-hmm. closer to where we want to be. Not that like we spend all of our childhood saying we must get to this salary, but you know, to the point where I don't have to stress every day, you know? Yeah. And I was wondering what you were saying about the, like, how does it happen, right? Where you start to be like, well, you just got to bootstrap yourself because then you'll get to my position, right? And I've been sort of being really conscious of my own thoughts since I got to this place where I sort of, I can see how the impulse takes over, Mm. right? When you get to a comfortable position, I can see how it takes over, where it's really easy to just be like, well, you know, I worked hard, so, you know, you've got to do the same thing, right? Like, Because it, it, it's just everything is trying to reinforce that. I have yeah. to stay in the scholarship that I'm doing so that I don't let – because if I was just walking down the street, those are the messages you get about, mm. you know, these people are working hard, these people aren't working hard. And, of course, then – you know, you have friends and you can individually see that some people are working harder than others, not because they had more money, but because like there are just people who, you know what I'm saying? And that those anecdotal stories, it's easier to remember the way your friend didn't do X, Y, and Z versus whatever the data actually says for people overall. And so, yeah. you know, I feel like I can see how it might occur. And I'm, 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 if, if one is conscious of it and, and trying to focus on it intently, I think one can avoid that whole like, you know, slipping into looking down on people's mindset. I think that's all we got to do. I mean, that's the only thing we can control. We can only control how we see people, how we perceive people, and how we act towards people. And so if I see a person that shows up to a meeting in a hoodie and I have a strong reaction about it, my responsibility for myself is to say, okay, this person is wearing a hoodie, does it really matter? Do I have to judge that person? That's all I can control. I cannot control anything else. And so I think, but all of that requires a lot of work from us because we're going to have that visceral reaction because those are the signals that we have got throughout our entire lives. And so what we need to do is to stop understand where that's coming from, or at least try to understand where that's coming from and choose how you're going to react to that situation. But I don't, I don't think that people are doing that work because it requires a lot of work. And first it requires you to understand that that it's a visceral reaction to somebody showing up in a hoodie that it was arbitrary. Whoever said that you couldn't be a professional if you had a hoodie, you know, or like, Professional, like I was talking to, I went to, I had a, a guest on my podcast. His, his name is Pavel Martinez and he has a podcast. He's, it's called, um, Quien Tu Eres. It's like, who are you in Spanish? And it's all about challenging the concept of professionalism and who, whoever invented that you have to wear a suit and a tie or a button down shirt to be professional. When being a professional is really just about doing your job and doing your job well. Um, so I think 
there is a lot of work that we have to do. And, and the hardest part is that we need to realize that we need to change the way that we do things and change is hard. And so I think there's a lot of the issues are coming from that one, but also then the other issue is like, you got to recognize that these things are holding us back. These beliefs or whatever, like all of these messages that we get are not making it easy for the next generation. So there change is needed. Yeah. I think that, um, I was like, oh, no, because there's two things that I wanted to say in response to that. And I was trying to keep both of them in my head while you were talking. Um, <laughs> I was like, no, don't lose the first one. Uh, I think that there's – I had okay, one of them is that I had an episode that was about professionalism two and a half years ago with DJ Ranjitan because, you know, I noticed – and this is related to the other point I wanted to make, so I did remember them. Good job. Um, is – Last year when I got my ADHD diagnosis and I was looking up more symptoms, right? These, mm-hmm. I, I realized a lot of things about me that I would never have thought had to do with that were related to it. Because for those who don't know, ADHD isn't just like a little kid who can't sit still, right? Mm-hmm. And that, obviously I'm not a little kid anymore, but that's still the image that people have. And that was not, I mean, I, yeah, I moved around a lot when I was a kid, but I didn't really fidget in my chair. Most of my extra energy was just in my head. I was just daydreaming and, 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 you know, coming up with imaginary stuff and so forth and just not really focusing on class if I wasn't interested. If I was interested, I would hyper-focus, and the thing is I could do tests really well, so people never noticed there was an issue. And I did a lot mm. of my – a lot of my struggles were social because I couldn't quite relate to people. Or I would try mm. too hard, and they'd be like – they'd just like, what's wrong with you? You're annoying. But anyway, well, some of the other things that are true of ADHD is that it, ha- it, it it's, it's a real heightened um, sensory thing. So, you know, certain sensations will feel amazing or terrible, like much more so mm. than for some other people. It's not just ADHD that's true of autism and some other things, too. But um, and one thing I noticed is that, like, you know, I was going to the office every day maybe before all this, but like and I was just like physically uncomfortable every day. Now, it's not mm. to the extent that women in heels and all that. Obviously, I could walk, but like I wasn't hurting my knees or anything. But like I one of the things is that I have some like eczema and stuff like that and I would just wear clothes and and, I just be like this is uncomfortable but this is what you have to do to go to the office and Mm -hmm. I said but why and it's one thing I learned like I am not someone who hates being in the office depending on the office and the people right we were talking about that before we were recording is that like I go in the office a couple times a week just because I get bored sitting at home and there's also nobody in the office so you know whatever but I no longer wear clothes that make me uncomfortable Mm. why i'm 36 years old why would i do this to myself <laughs> yeah. you know and it also ties in because my scholarship is mostly about sort of race and ability and language a lot of what we accept in the language teaching space is discomfort and we always expect and normalize discomfort in oppressed groups Right. One of the things in the language space that comes up a lot is, um, you know, we say that people learning a language for the first time or trying to speak a language for the first time are going to be silent or they're going to be uncomfortable or whatever. Mm-hmm. Observing observing that isn't necessarily a harmful thing to say, but we just sort of expect, oh, they're not talking because they're uncomfortable. I'm like, why are they uncomfortable? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. why are we accepting their discomfort? Mm-hmm. Like, why? Are we, but we never expect the the people with more power to be uncomfortable. Because the real thing, to tie it all the way back to what you said, is that 
the reason people don't do that is because it's uncomfortable. You know, that introspection of, like, huh. Because sometimes, like, for me, like, I, a lot of it was because I went to therapy and all that. And what I learned was, Justin, maybe you could just shut up sometimes. Like, you don't have to say anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I learned that for myself. I was, I, mm-hmm. I used to just comment on everything. And then I mm-hmm. would be like, you don't have to. And then just by not commenting, it really, you know, made things a lot better in the way that I was sort of uh, dealing with things. Yeah, yeah. But it, yeah, what are you saying? I mean, it is, it's a, it's an uncomfortable work to do, but if we want to change things, then if we, maybe not want to change things, but if we want things to improve, not just for ourselves, but for the generation that comes after us, then we have to be willing to do that work. Um, and for, like, we were talking about this before, you know, like how some of the, the minority bosses that we have had are like the worst people in the room. And, I wonder if I, I wonder where that comes from because like from the Latinx community when we talk about racism everybody says oh we're not racist we're so mixed we cannot be racist and that is totally not true right and so like for us and and you get like the amount of pushback that you would get from a Latin person when you talk about racism it's huge but we literally had a cast system coming from the Spaniards the closest you were to being full blood European the higher you were in the um in the hierarchy of people that matter and so you want to tell me that we don't that we're not that we didn't internalize that as a society with all the countries that were colonized by Spain I mean they and and people they would tell you they will 100% reject the idea of being racist and then they say oh um, you cannot, I had, I had, this is a true example of how racist we are. One of my best friends from college, um, she's Cuban and we went to the beach one night. We went, we were in Miami. We went out. It was spring break. We went to, to a club. We hung out. We met this one guy who was a black Cuban and we went to the beach. And then maybe two or three days later, and then we came back home. We were staying in her parents' house, and um, we were showing up the pictures. And then in this, he was in the pictures that we were taking, and then her dad saw the picture. And the guy threw a huge fit because there was a black guy with us in the pictures. And we're like, what the hell, <laughs> you know? So it's like... We don't want to say we're racist because it hurts to understand that and to to um, acknowledge that. But we totally are. It's nobody wants to be the bad guy, you know, because the way we think of things, I mean, we all watch too many movies, right? There's like there's good guys and there's bad guys, and that's it. Like you can't. It's not. There's no gray area, mm. you know, because we. All of us were taught from a young age, well, not all of us, I'm sure there's some white nationalist families, but you know what I mean. Almost everybody was taught from a young age, like, racism bad. Mm. But they may not quite understand the full extent of what racism is, but, like, it is, you know, we, we hear racism like a bad thing, right? Mm-hmm. And a person who does the racism is the bad people, which is not untrue, but we tend to think of racism as being contained within the bad people. So if we are part of it, does that mean we are the bad people too? Mm. And if we are, 
then what does that mean? Is nobody and so it's just like the first time you really consider this, especially if you're in the powerful position yourself, right? It can be really destabilizing. And frankly, it's not something that I can experience, right? I had to learn a lot of stuff about racism myself, but I can't experience the feeling of understanding racism as a white person. Now that doesn't make it harder for them. I mean, you know, obviously we have to go through dealing with it, but I mean, I don't know. I'm sure that's really destabilizing. If you thought you were good, you know, good people, and now you're like, oh no. And also that you can't go back and undo whatever it is you used to do. Yeah. You know, like, like, you know, part of my book, I talk about when I was 21 and I was upholding a lot of the language ideologies that I now reject. Well, I can't go back and undo that. Yeah, yeah. And part of the work that I do is to try to, in a small way, atone for upholding ideologies that I, I really think are harmful. Um, Because it's really, you know, that that it's not just realizing that you're complicit in harm that is a problem. That's hard enough. But if you say, oh, man, I've been doing something wrong and going forward, I'll do something different. I think that that can happen because that doesn't necessarily have to be about oppression or anything like that. I think, and I think this is an underexplored piece that the hard part for a lot of people is the fact that they can't go back and fix some of the stuff that was done once they realized mm. it. I think that that's just really hard to swallow. It was really hard for me to swallow um, mm. when I thought about myself as a teacher because I thought I was a good teacher and I was in this technical aspects, but in terms of what I was pushing on people I really needed to, I really wish that I had done it differently and I just think that's hard for people to swallow hmm okay yeah okay I can understand that I can see that but okay, at what point do we say you know like that we, I don't I don't know I wish that we didn't use that part uh to hold us back from then saying well okay well I did this terrible things or or I did these things when I was younger, and and those were bad, and I recognized that. But let me do things a little differently now that I have, you know, I'm more mature. I understand things better. Like we, I think one of one of the concepts that I really like from that I've learned just from working in corporate spaces is this idea of, um, like a what is it called? Uh, oh man, I forget now. But it's this idea of um, just changing your mindset and just understanding that you can improve at all times, that you can change things at all times, that you're not stuck in your ways. Like you're not, you never stop learning. You never stop having that ability to learn to to improve yourself. And so why why can't we just? Well, I would like to say let's uptake that mentality, that mindset of yeah. I mean, I did terrible things in the past, but. I know better now, and so I can do better now. And I can't change those things. That's true. But let me apologize for what I did and forgive myself and make sure that we don't do it again. You know, and I also think that um, the narrative in public is not helped by, you know, sort of white savior stories, right? Because I think that even when people are willing to acknowledge some of this, right, the way that we are taught, especially they are taught to process this is by becoming the hero. They'll mm. say, well, I did things wrong. And so now I got to be the best person of all time and everybody's going to find out about it. Mm. <laughs> it's just like, so you just went and you centered yourself again. Great. Um, <laughs> but that's for people who sort of get half of it, but they don't quite get. That's why in, in the class I was teaching on whiteness, we have a whole section on like how to avoid 
being a white savior when you actually try to help. Um, yeah. because, you know, it, 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 for people to acknowledge that they may have been the villain is only acceptable if they can then become the hero. Mm. Um, and like, it's really more like just not being the villain, <laughs> you know, like, like you went, yeah. oh yeah, you just don't have right. to be, you don't have to be a superhero. I think that there's, I think what's hard for people to understand, there's a lot of things that are hard for people to understand is that to, to challenge these sorts of things, you do have to live it, right? You, you can't just do it from nine to five and, and, you know, I want to mm-hmm. be better at it in my workplace and then go back to, um, a, a neighborhood that I enforce the exclusive boundaries of, right? You know, yeah. you got to do both. But once you sort of get over that hump of making it a regular habit to do these things, it's not actually hard. Like, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily easy, but it's like, it becomes, if it becomes who you are, then it's natural. It just becomes yeah. part of who you are. And I wish that it's really hard to tell people that like, yeah, it's, it, it's like literally a life's work. Like you're going to have to be challenging these things yeah. forever. Yeah. But I have made it to the point where, and I think, you know, you and others are in the same place where once you get a real clear understanding of these issues, it's harder to ignore them than it is to see them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's sort of how I feel about it, about my exercise. Yeah. I got to the point where it's harder for me not to exercise. <laughs> it's part of your routine. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think that's a good point. And I think, you know, I, I, sometimes I feel, sometimes I wish I, I didn't, uh, I wasn't this aware, you know, because then my life would be easier. My life would be 100% easier by just living in my own bubble and not caring about anything that happens uh, around me or to me. You know, sometimes things happen to me as well. I don't, I don't think that I am not as, I don't think that they, I have too many examples of things happening to me, but I, I do realize when things happen. Like I, I'll give you an example that just happened to me at work. Um, Two weeks ago, we went to Canada to do, to set up a business in Canada. And, um, we went, we, I, I work now in oil and gas. And so we were going to the area in Canada that has a lot of oil and gas and exploration. And that's the, the hub, like the equivalent of Houston would be Calgary. And then the equivalent of Midland would be this place that we were. It's called, um, man, I don't forget. Three hours north of Calgary. Anyway, so we have a colleague that lives in Atlanta, and her whole job is to come and set up tollers, and we were going to go and set up a toller, look at the toller, their facilities, they blend chemicals and things like that. And so that was her her job, was to come in, look at the facilities, talk about what's possible so that we can set it up and we can set up a partnership. And um, she is a black colleague from Atlanta, and then she uh, flew in just to go and see that place. That's the whole purpose of her visit was that. And we show up at the place, and she's got her natural hair. So she had some braids in the front, and then she had her natural hair in the back. And so it was, um, it had more volume, a lot more volume than mine anyway. And so we had to wear a hard hat and 
supposed and and then we had to put in um like a hair tie to tie our hair in the back and she didn't have um nobody had told us that in advance and she showed up and she went to put on her hard hat and it didn't fit so she asked for a bigger hat, hard hat and they said oh i can get you a bigger hard hat but you have to pull your hair back you cannot come in with your hair like that and i was like wait wait what I was like, and they're like, yeah, you can come into the tour because there's a lot of hazards out there and I'm not comfortable taking you on the tour like that. And I was like, and she said, well, okay, I'll, I'll stay back. I won't go on the tour. And I saw that and I was like, wait, like, why? I, I went back and I was like, wait, like I have a few hair ties. Maybe we can do something about it. And she's like, I show her what I had. And she's like, no, like this is not going to work. Like I won't be able to pull my hair back with this. When I went back and I asked the guy, I was like, wait, like, do, don't you have a hairnet? Like something that we can use? Like, I don't think it's okay for her to not go in the, in the tour because she's got hair <laughs> and you didn't tell us. Ahead of time that we needed to prepare for this. You tell, you told us about everything else. You didn't tell us about this. And so, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, she didn't go through. And when we went through the, the entire tour, I was like, I don't, I didn't see any hazards. We weren't rolling under some drums or anything like that or going in confined spaces where she maybe could have had a trouble going through. And then I told my boss, I mean, my boss is like, afterwards, we went in the car and he's like, oh, well, first of all, everybody's white except for me and my other colleague who is black. And so we went in the car and then like, they're like, oh, that sucked that she couldn't go. And I was like, I was like, I am appalled. I am disappointed. And they're like, oh, yeah, I mean, that was kind of, that was kind of, you know, that was kind of bad. And I was like. No, it was in Kanabad. This is her whole purpose for coming here. This is her sole job. This is why she came. And she couldn't go in because she has hair. I mean, that is, I was so upset. And then these people were like, oh, you know, not even aware that, that this was the thing. You know, not even aware that this was an injustice that shouldn't have happened. And what we should have done as a, as a team was to all walk out of there. At least that's how I feel. Yeah, to me, the issue, the ma- when white people see things like that happen, they will think about what the man said as the issue, right? To me, that's an, that is an issue. To me, it's two things. It's the fact that it was not whatever protocol, whatever happened. Like, I, I am certain that man did not wake up that morning thinking, how can I ruin this black lady's day? Right. Uh, you know, and there's some protocol that he felt the need he needed to enforce. Right now, you can say, OK, him feeling the need to do that is whatever. But clearly there was some protocol written somewhere that may have been, you know, improperly applied or whatever. But the problem is that the protocol exists in a way that discriminates against people. It's the way that the system is set up. And then the other problem is the colleagues just sort of being like, oh, well, you know, I guess uh because. That's what makes it so hard for people to speak up about it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And when it's interesting to me is that when I have had people stand up for me when these things have happened, 
I don't even tend to remember the experiences natively because I find it to be encouraging when people sort of stand up. And so to me, when those things happen and people don't stand up for me, then to me, not the not standing up for, for the thing is, is often worse than the actual incident. I mean, obviously, you know, the incident could be really bad, but it's not, it hasn't happened to me in that sense. I'm not, I'm not felt like I've been in direct danger in that way, but like, you know, I tend to remember how everyone else re- reacted, how everyone mm. else responded in the moment. Like I've had mm. racial things happen to me at job and like when all my, like the entire staff stood up to like deal with it. And I was like, Oh, all right. That's pretty cool. Mm. Um, or, or, you know, and then at another job where they weren't really doing anything. Mm. And to me, the individual actor who's doing a bad thing. Yeah, that's bad. But like, there's always going to be individual people doing bad things. Like that's not like even if it wasn't racism or or, or or something else like that. Like you know, people could say things that upset you. Like that just happens. It's just like mm-hmm. what do you know? Do you feel like there is a collective a support? Because it, it goes to what we were saying earlier about bosses is that you know bosses can basically encourage you to continue to develop, or they can be more interested in you doing their bidding. And mm-hmm. um I tend to think that some people, when handed a small amount of power, are more interested in that than they are in anything else. <laughs> like they just they just I I have I mean like people getting power drunk over the smallest, most insignificant bit of power is just something I've seen at jobs and I'm just like like this doesn't matter. Like why? Why are you so? Yeah. Like you know, my last job they used to they used to be really. We used to teach in a in a uh, a classroom that we had in an office building in, in our office building. It's actually in the World Trade Center. Um, and at the the classes were like all day, and sometimes the class would finish before the end of the technical work day. Right? Maybe the class finished at four fifteen, and we would finish and we'd be like, all right, go home. Because class is over. And one time, one person from the class had left something at their desk. So when we when we got out early, they went back to their desk to get something. And their boss saw them. And immediately made the rule that if the class ends before 4.15, they have to go back and sit at their desks until 5 o'clock. Why? They're yeah. not going to do anything. Yeah. You can't start and end anything in 40 minutes. Yeah. So, you know, if that was just a person wanting to exercise power over other grown adults for no reason. Mm-hmm. It, helped, it helped nobody. It made the people mad at us because we had to, we had to drag our classes out longer for no reason. Mm-hmm. We, just, we, just, we ended up just making lunch longer. Like, you know, we made lunch longer. We made breaks longer, but like mm-hmm. it was a whole bunch of nonsense mm-hmm. just because their, their manager wanted to exercise control over them. I mean, like I, don't let, I manage a program and a projects and, and a lot of things. I don't manage people right now. I have before. I don't love telling people what to do. I really don't. Like, mm-hmm. especially like grown adults. I guess I tell my son what to do, but it doesn't mean he listens if he's two. <laughs> but, <laughs> but like, I don't really like telling grown adults what to do unless they literally come to me for like my expertise or something. And then I'll tell them mm-hmm. my opinion or something. But like, I don't like it just because I feel like it's really easy to go power drunk. Like I, I, it, mm. it, it makes me kind of uncomfortable to, to have 
significant amounts of power over people, right? Yeah. And um, and I say the difference because at my last job, what we were doing just didn't matter. Like it objectively didn't matter in the sense that, okay, you could make the case that what we were doing, we were developing curriculum for city workers, right? That could matter in the sense that they would learn how to do certain things better. Sure, but whenever we were training people on things, the city would never actually listen to us. They mm-hmm. were only they were only offering these training programs to sort of cover their ass so that the, right. people, the people couldn't say they weren't trained. Mm-hmm. So then we would train them, and the city would be like, well, we did what we had to do. And so it literally didn't matter in the that whatever we would write, the city was not going to listen to us. Mm-hmm. But the people, my boss had all this, like, you know, small amount of power and telling everybody to make copies of this. I'm like, like what? You can't print anything, you know? Um, and my boss now, there's a lot of money involved in the projects we're doing now, mm-hmm. right? That's not necessarily going to me, but like, you know, these are big, big grants, like million mm-hmm. dollar grants, right? And he doesn't act that way, you know? And then his boss, who has even more power, does not act that way. The CEO does not act that way. These people actually have power, but mm. they don't wield it in this with, with an iron fist because I think that, you know, I think it helps that this is a, a black-led organization. So mm-hmm. this is not a place where if you're black to get to the top, you have to act a certain mm. way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, it's just the place where they did the studies to realize that, like, we were doing fine working remotely, so why mm-hmm. force everybody? Um, to and go then, back to. Right. And the thing is, we do go back for big events. We go in for events or we go in for certain things if there's, like, a funder in town. Like, we understand. Uh, but it's just, like, they actually went out there and did what they realized. They said, like, we will have to spend so much more money recruiting people if we force everybody back to the office and we're going to lose all these good people so Mm -hmm. okay maybe we're quote-unquote losing money on um some of the office space but like it's still not nearly as much money as it would cost to go out and and, like rehire people at this level yeah And, and a lot of companies either don't believe that which is very much true like this is proven or they're so power drunk that they don't care. They just want to put people in their, in their seats. And I just mm-hmm. think it's just really funny because my last boss said she was mad that people didn't want to go back to the office. And then as soon as it became possible for them all not to go to the office, she didn't go to the office. So. <laughs> <laughs> Since I can force, I'm going to force everybody else too. It's exactly what it was. Yeah. But, but then like, yeah. So I, I saw her once in my last four months. Um, and, and yeah. So, yeah. I know, I just think that there is a power to the podcasting, you know, highlighting stories from different people. Um, cause I really think that there is, the only thing people sometimes pay attention to is stories. Mm-hmm. And I think you all do great work bringing stories to light for people that, you know, might not have thought about what it would be like to get to a certain type of career as a person in that community and like what actual nuts and bolts steps people have taken to get there. Yeah. People yeah. see the end, but they don't, and they see the beginning. They don't ever hears about the, the middle. The middle. Yeah. Yeah. And the journey, right? Like my own journey has been like, I, I had a plan 
but it hasn't been anything like it, you know. And I think when the other thing that I like to um, do with the podcast when we talk about the stories of people and how they got there is to highlight the fact that that we got to be flexible as well. You know, we might have this plan. We might want to achieve all these things that we want to achieve. But at the same time, we want to be open for what else is out there? What other opportunities out there? How might I benefit from something different? Because if we're stuck in our ways and that's the only way that we're going to follow, then there isn't a lot of opportunity for us to explore something new. And and part of what I believe in life is that we need to, I know that we all make our, our inner groups as comfortable as uh, as they can be because those are our safe spaces and we hang out with people that are like us, that think like us. Um, and that certainly is my experience. But I also think that there's a lot of value in interacting with people who are different from us so that we can learn something new. And so I, I think that's true for career trajectory, trajectories as well. And so um, that that's why I like to highlight those stories. Well, Dr. Flores, uh, it's been great talking to you about these things. Um, I think we, our shows have different aims, but I think we're contributing to a similar, I don't know, ideological project um, in the space because I... I I don't think there was a particular podcast exactly like mine before mine came around, and I don't think there was a particular podcast Mm. exactly like yours before yours came around. And that's not to Mm. say that we're like the best podcasters in the world, uh, but just in the sense that (laughs) we put ourselves anything where you're hearing that person a person's voice that much, like you know you they're putting themselves in there. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I feel this is true of academic work too, is that the only difference between, um. Good and bad academic work to me, not the only difference, but the, like the writing is not whether or not a person is in their writing, because every person is in their writing. It's whether or not they're honest and direct about their being in their writing. Because mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of academic work that's dry and whatever, but someone still wrote that and they're just trying to pretend that they are so objective and removed from everything, mm-hmm. but like you can't be. Like, yeah. that's not true. You chose to yeah. research this for a reason. Yeah. You know, you have some connection to this, right? And to pretend otherwise is, is what I think ruins a lot of academic work. And I think it ruins a lot of podcasts, too. Yeah. So that's what I think that I'm glad that we are both doing differently. Oh, I appreciate that. And I think it um it also reminds me of the corporate persona, right? It's like people that show up to the office and they want to be this image of whoever they think that they should be at the office. And then when they go home, it's totally different. I understand that. I mean, that's a lot of energy to to code switch like that. It's a lot of energy. And I've seen it myself. Like, I don't think we are at a point where we all can show up to the office in our, you know, after nine, after 5 p.m. persona or, or personality. But I think the, if we can challenge, if we are in a position where we can take the risk of showing up as ourselves and, and talk the way that we want to talk and, um, and, and challenge the status quo as much as we want to do it, 
I think we should do it. I don't know. I don't think any, I don't think everybody has the privilege to challenge the status quo, but I would want to say if you have it and if you want to put your skin in the game, we need it. So, so let's do it. Yeah. I don't think everybody has to do everything. I think that yeah. a, 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 as many people as possible with any potential to influence things, um, you need to just try. And if we were all trying, like there's a whole bunch of people, there's people who really do, like don't like the work that we do. And then there's people who like the work that we do. But I, my, my hope is always that that big middle of people who generally think what we're doing is good, but aren't doing anything about it. Yeah. That's yeah. who I hope to really reach with my work and, and not just this, but the book and everything is like the people who, you know, are just going along. Yeah. <laughs> And they're not necessarily the ones causing all the issues, but they're just sort of like getting through. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that's what I want to push. So. Yeah. Excellent.